Tonight's reading is from Acts 2, verse 42 to 47. And once you're there, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are almost done with Acts chapter 2 this week. And so as we come to the close of this chapter, it is important that we consider the results of the first sermon preached uh, in, the, in the life of the early church. And that's really what we have in this kind of summary section, verses 42 through 47. It, it gives us the, the, the outcome of the first sermon ever preached and the subsequent reality in the life of the church. So as we study this text tonight, we're going to be looking at a snapshot, if you like, of what the early church was like. Now, the reason I say this is a a snapshot that we're looking at is because there's a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different insights we have through the New Testament into the life of the early church. For example, you could go to 1 Corinthians and you could see how Paul writes to the church there and the things they struggle with, and you get a, a lens or a snapshot at what the church in Corinth looks like. And similarly, you could go a couple of chapters later into the book of Acts, and you could see the kind of situation they're facing on the ground, how they respond to it. You get another snapshot of what the church looks like in, in that context. So tonight, what we're looking at is, is just one of those snapshots, but I'll, I want to try to show you, it's my goal to show you tonight, that it's a snapshot that gives us some essential qualities of what makes the church the church. Uh, that, you, that a church must be like this in some ways, and can be different in other kinds of ways. But I think in these verses we have, in part, what is the core of what it means for a church to actually be, be a church. So we're going we're gonna to look at that in just a moment. But in order to frame that idea in your mind, I want you to consider for just a moment uh, what makes a camera a camera. <laughs> so if, if you have, if you, I, many of you probably grew up with cameras, so... Um, I know we all have phones now, so many, very rarely do we carry cameras around unless you're into Polaroids and taking photos the old-fashioned way. I actually only know of one person I've ever seen carry a camera besides my wife, and that is Jared, and that's because he's really good with cameras, and he knows that an iPhone is insufficient for many photography needs. But the, the question I'm going to ask is, how, how many things from, a, let's say, a high-tech camera could you strip away before that camera would cease to be a camera? So you can have, you know, like a luxury camera with, with a lens that can do a ton of zoom features and all kinds of lighting, and I hope I'm not offending you right now, Jared. Um, uh, you, you, could do all the, you could have a camera that does all of those things, and then, well, what if you take that zoom lens away? It, it can't do a ton of fancy stuff, but it can still, you know, within reason, take shots. Now, what if you take away other features, like uh, it has less memory than, than another camera does, or um, it doesn't have quite as many light filter settings, or... You know, how many things can you strip away from it 
before eventually it ceases to be a camera. Right? You, could, you could say, well, you know, if the, if the thing that takes photos, if the lens goes, it, then it can't be a camera. If it doesn't have a way to visualize the world around it, it's no longer a camera. Right? But you can have uh, many things that have many different uh, kinds of functions that all would fit broadly under the category of camera. Right? And you can have, uh, and you can have so a whole host of variety in, the, in, let's say, the camera world. Right? If you go online, you try to buy a camera, you can get lots of different varieties there. And it's actually like that today with the church as well. You can, you can see many different churches out in the West, out in Africa, out in Asia. Um, you, you can see many different churches all around the world, all with various varieties of things that they have going on that look very different from other churches. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is what makes a church a church at its core? What are the essential things that you can't strip away from it without losing what it is for a church to be a church? There's lots of things you can add, lots of things that might be different from one church to another. You've probably noticed that if you've worshipped here and you maybe have worshipped at other churches as well. We do some things slightly differently here than at other churches, how they might do things. So, so that's the question we're going to approach tonight in the text. What makes a church essentially a church? And so to do that, we're going to have to examine this instruction starting in verse 42 in light of its, its context. So, remember, verse 42 takes place after verse 41. And in verse 41, we see that there are many who have repented, who have been baptized, and who are now uh, being added to the life of the church. If you were to consider this to be an early church, uh, let's say, mass rally, mass conversion experience, it, it's something like that, right? The apostles go from 12 of them and a couple of others uh, praying in a small room they can fit in a, in a private room. And now there's not going to be one building in Jerusalem that's going to house them anymore because of the response of the gospel that has just taken place. And really the context uh, that precedes verse 42 is really important for understanding what verse 42 means when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Well, that assumes that we know what the apostles teach. And we've seen what the apostles teach because all of chapter 2 is basically a sermon that the apostles are saying, we're behind this. This is our theology summarized. That the Bible talks about Jesus, that all of the Old Testament was pointing to this moment where Christ would redeem his people, and that moment has begun now. That Christ is in the means, in the process of redeeming his people. Proof of that is that the Holy Spirit has now been poured out to his body, and, and proof of that is that these people, as they hear this message, are cut to the heart and they respond in repentance. All of that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit blessing the church. And so this is what, what I think is necessary for us to understand before we can understand verse 42. So you have all that theology, and that takes us then to verse 42. They devoted themselves to this teaching from the apostles. And not only to the teaching of the apostles, but also they devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And I think that the breaking of bread and prayers elaborates on the term fellowship. So the term teaching doesn't need elaboration because of all that just preceded it in the previous verses. But the term fellowship does need elaboration. So we get uh, two different descriptors. What I mean by that is the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, uh, Luke is going to say the same thing again in verse 46. And it might, it might not quite be clear to you, depending on what 
translation you're looking at, but if you look at verse 46, it begins with, and in the ESV, and day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And that, and some of your translations might have the same word. Verse 42, they devoted themselves, and verse 46, and day by day, that's the same word. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and they devoted themselves to attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. It's the same thrust of what's going on in both cases. And so I think that what Luke's trying to tell us is that, is that this is essentially what makes the church the church. That there's teaching that they are under and feeding upon, and there is fellowship that they are having, which is the fruit of that teaching that they share together in common. And so that's going to be what I try to argue about for the next 30 minutes with you. If you don't agree with me on that, or maybe you're like, yes, that sounds great, and I want to learn more about what that is like. I think it's teaching and fellowship. This is the core of what makes a church a church. To lose one or the other is to lose something essential to the core of the church. Because what does the early church do? But they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship together. Not one and not just the other, but both together are what they are devoted to. And it's repeated twice in verse 42 and in verse 46. So, let's explore that a little bit. What does it mean that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles? And then, we might, uh, if you can see where this is going, what does it mean for us to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles? Well, for them... It's actually really simple. They have apostles, right? They have, you can just go to Peter, or you can go to James, or you can go to John. You can say, hey, what does Jesus say about this thing? Or what should we do in this situation or circumstance? I mean, they have living apostles with them. They can just go and ask. They can say, what are we to do in this situation? And actually, several times in the book of Acts, the apostles are very helpful in adjudicating matters, right? You'll see in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, there's this huge issue that comes up about what do we do with the Gentiles that are now being added to our number. Should they be circumcised? Should they not? And the apostles, along with other elders and leaders in the church, say, they sit down, they discuss it, they debate it, and then they go, okay, here's what we decided, and they send a letter out, an authoritative letter out to all the churches to say, here is def definitively what we have ruled. This is, this is how we are going to do it. That's really helpful. Um, so that was an easy answer, right? They just go and say, say to the apostles, well, what do we believe? They submit themselves to the instruction of the apostles. Now, the submission of the to the instruction of the apostles aligns with something we've already seen in the book of Acts, which is when Jesus says to the apostles, I have made you my witnesses. So Jesus has put his authority into the apostles and his instruction to them. He's promised that he will give his teaching to them and they are to then spread that teaching to the world. Now that is contra a very popular belief in Christianity today that the red letters of your Bible are more authoritative than other aspects of your New Testament. So, you know, Paul wrote some things, Peter wrote some things, James wrote some things. We've got the letter to the Hebrews. But it's really, what really matters is what is the dialogue of Jesus? And that's really all that matters. But that flies in the face of what Jesus himself says to the apostles, which is, I have given you my authority. And I have given you my message. And now the people, notice they, it doesn't say they, they submitted themselves to the teachings of Jesus. Of course they're doing that. But they're doing that through the apostles who are Jesus' designated messengers. 
The apostles guard the teaching of the church. It's one of their jobs. That's really helpful because you're going to see very quickly in Acts and in other letters in the early church that people take Jesus and they do basically whatever they want with him, and that's not something that's new to the 21st century. This happens all over the place in the book of Acts. You have people who see that Jesus has power to cast out demons, and they say, I want that. I want that power. Can I get that? Can I buy that? Can I have that authority? And so the teaching of the church and the power associated with the church needs to be guarded, and it's guarded by the apostles, as I'm going to argue in a moment, also later by pastors and those who are charged with shepherding the church. But it's, it's significant that the church submits themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They are the authority of God to the church. So do we have apostles today? Can we go to someone and say, what, is the, what does God say about this? How should I behave? Well, not, not really in the same way that the first century church did. A lot of the apostles are dead by the time you get to 60 AD. Most of them have been killed or martyred in some, some way, shape, or form. And the only one who dies of old age, it dies in exile on the island of Patmos somewhere in the late 90s. And so, yeah, we don't have any more apostles today. Uh, Acts records the, the last days of Paul. Uh, Peter is killed. Uh, Acts records the deaths of other apostles as well. So the apostolic group, they don't make it past the first century AD. And so there's two possibilities. I'm going to give you the two possibilities and we'll adjudicate between them. One, one possibility is that those apostles also could put their authority, the authority that Christ had put in them, to other living witnesses, and they could so pass on the teaching of Jesus, let's say in a living way, down to the church for as long as she needed it. That's, that's one possible view. That what the apostles do, you know, when, when Peter reaches the end of his life, he, he chooses his successor, and the successor takes over after him and goes forward, and, and that's how the apostolic authority is guarded. So that today, uh, we would have something like living apostles who would be the guardians of the faith. That's, that's one possibility. And that's one dominant argument today in Christianity, that that's how the apostles guarded their authority, by putting it in living witnesses. The other, the other view is that what the apostles did to guard the church and to make sure the church had the correct teachings was they wrote down what they believed. And they wrote these things down in various contexts and in various ways. And then they gave those to the church so the church would have once and for all, here's what Paul believes about this. Here's what Peter believes about this. Here's what the apostolic council believes about this. And, and in writing, the teachings of the apostles have been then preserved. Before we adjudicate between that, I want to go back to the Old Testament, not in page turning, but in, in your minds. And I want you to think about what Moses did when he was given a revelation from God and he was charged with passing that revelation forward into the coming generations. Moses goes to Mount Sinai. He gets the Ten Commandments. He gets all these instructions from God about how the people are to build a temple and how they're to offer sacrifices, all these things, the first five books of the Bible that we have. So Moses has all of this revelation from God. And towards the end of Moses' life, he has the opportunity to, to decide how the authoritative teaching of Yahweh is going to be guarded and preserved for the Israelites for generations to come. Now some of you might be thinking, yes, Moses chooses Joshua to be his successor. Moses does. 
But Joshua doesn't function like Moses functioned. Joshua is a military leader. He obeys what Moses taught. He possibly records the book of Joshua, although we're not really sure who writes that book. But, but Joshua is not some kind of living witness on behalf of Moses. Well, what does Moses do? I actually said it earlier. He writes the first five books of the Bible, and he deposits that forward to the Israelites. Now, he gives it to the Levites, to the priests, and to Joshua to obey, to follow after, and to submit themselves to. But he puts the authority of God's revelation given to him, he puts it in writing. It's not like there's a Moses one, a Moses junior, a Moses junior, junior, nothing like that. Okay, so that's one example in redemptive history. And, and why, why might that have been a good thing as opposed to having a living Moses, you know, who, who abides with the people always? Well, actually, by the time you get to the kings, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, um, they're, they're bad in all kinds of ways. One of the ways in which they're bad, Saul, uh, the first king, he, he actually kills a whole bunch of prophets because he says, I don't like these guys. And so he just puts them to death. He slays a whole bunch of them. And so Saul does this, and then there's a couple of bad kings, and then you have this king who rediscovers the book of the law that Moses wrote. And that king reforms all of Israel to obey what Moses had first written down. So Moses doesn't have some kind of living witness, but he has something better, something more permanent, which is a written revelation about what God believes about X, Y, and Z. And that actually works really well. It doesn't work perfectly because obviously after that king dies, another takes his place and is wicked. But it has the opportunity to preserve the teachings of God despite varying power struggles in the, in the system of the Israelite nation. So how does the early church preserve the revelation of God? How do the apostles do that? Well, they write. They write quite a bit. And we have their writings and it's called the 27 books of the New Testament. Each of those books is backed in some way, shape, or form by apostolic authority. And, well, what is, the, what is the benefit of that? The benefit of that is when the church goes corrupt, which she does a couple of times in her history, you get a pope or a king who seizes power and who says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to squelch these teachings, I'm going to burn these people as heretics, and that way I'm going to preserve my claim to the throne. Well, the benefit is you, you have what God said in written form. You can just go and you can, you know, if you can, as, as the reformers did, they read Greek, they go and translate this into the vernacular tongue, and they say, hey, we don't have to pay indulgences to be forgiven of sins. We can pray to God and ask for forgiveness, and he is gracious to forgive us. There's no such thing as penance. That's based on a, one of the church's translations of the Bible, and we would argue not a good one. That's what, that's what Luther and Calvin and them are arguing. And so the written witness has this ability to preserve the teaching of the apostles arguably more permanently, more enduringly than a living witness would. And that's interesting. So I think because if we look backwards at Moses and what happened in his passing of the torch to Joshua, we have a little bit of what we can expect when we get to the New Testament and we have the apostles and their passing of the torch to the next generation. They're not passing the torch to another round of apostles, another 12 who are to take the throne. They're passing the torch to, to pastors, to elders. They're saying, your job is to obey what we have told you. Your job is to submit and to follow after the word as it's been revealed. It's 
what Joshua does with Moses. He doesn't write new stuff. He just says, here's what Moses gave to us. Here's what we're going to obey. Moses said, go get after the promised land. Here's what we're going to go do. And so we have a historical precedent of that. And so by the time we get to the early church, I think that's what we can expect. So that's a, a complicated way of saying, I think, to answer the question, how do we submit to the teaching of the apostles today? We submit ourselves to the word of God, which the apostles gave to us, the New Testament, and also to those whom the apostles said, these are the deputized witnesses to guard that teaching, which would be the pastors and the shepherds of the church. Now, again, the pastors and the shepherds are not authoritative like the apostles are. There's, there's no living apostles today who can trump what scripture says. Every pastor is subject to the teachings of scripture. But it's safeguarded in that you can't just spring up one day and say, I'm a Christian, I know what Jesus taught, I don't care what this church teaches or that church teaches, I know what's true. In some sense, scripture is still guarded by those who have submitted themselves to its care, to its trust. This is what Paul exhorts Timothy to in 1 and 2 Timothy, and what he tells Titus to do in Titus. This is what Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, he says to the elders, you are to guard the doctrine in the church which you have been entrusted with. So how do you, as a Christian today, submit yourself to the apostles' teaching? You belong to a church. You submit yourself to the word of God and to the teachings of the church, and you ensure that the teachings of the church line up with the teachings of Scripture. There's a little bit of an interplay there. It's not always perfect. It gets a little messy. Again, because we can't go to someone and say, hey, rule on this. What is the right or the wrong way to do this? We have to reason together as a believing people what is the right or the wrong way to go. But that's, so that's, that's one angle. And that sounds very complicated, but if we, if we say, oh, it doesn't, we don't have apostles, it doesn't matter what the church teaches, well, then you don't have a church anymore if you don't have that same theology, that same belief that the early church had. And so churches can believe differently. They can add things onto what the church might practice or how the church might practice propagating the teaching. But you can't just throw the teaching out and then still say you have a church any more than you can throw a lens out of a camera and say, I still have a camera, even though the thing that makes it essentially a camera is now gone. That's, that's one aspect of the church. And the second thing, the second thing that the early church has is it has fellowship. Now, the fellowship part is more explained in at least these verses in the text. I want to read uh, those together with you, verse 43 and following. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and notice this, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so, day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all men. So, you have the church, and in these verses explaining what does it mean for them to have fellowship together. Well, in verse 42, it says they are breaking bread and they were praying together. That's what it means to have fellowship. Then you have this longer explanation. Well, it's more than that. They're also looking after the needs of one another financially. They're saying, where's a need here in the body? Let's make sure we can take care of this person. Where's a need over here in the body? Let's take care of, of that person. So that, amazingly, by God's grace, as any person has need in the early church, their needs are met not by themselves, like they're self-sufficient, but by others in the body. Now, we might immediately te be tempted because of the size and scope of the church today across the world to think this is something like 
New Testament communism, where the church is going to the people and seizing all of their things and deciding how to distribute those things to other members of the church so that everyone has no need. But it's a little bit closer to how the normal family runs, where if you were to, if you were to go to any family, uh, a family that's, let's say, healthy and functioning, doesn't have, you know, anything crazy going on, the, the average family, you're going to have, let's say, kids of various ages, a mom and a dad. Uh, the, the dad brings home a paycheck, and he uses that to, to buy food for the family, and they all sit down together to dinner after the mom prepares the food. They all sit down together, and they say, well, here, you all eat as you have need, as you are hungry. But if you're a two-year-old, you're not going to eat as much as the six-year-old. You're not going to eat as much as the 18-year-old. But all of them together will have their needs met as is required. Similarly, they might have rooms with different things in those rooms. You know, one might have a bigger bed than the other. Uh, two of them might share a room. My brother and I, we shared a room growing up, and my sister, she had her own room. That's not because our parents were being unfair to us and trying to benefit our sister. It's because this just made sense, you know, for how we... Uh, lived as a family growing up. We, we had no needs among us, but we also didn't have everything perfectly equal across the board. And that's okay, because that's how families function. Everyone's needs are met. Their basic requirements are met, and, and then some. I think that's a better picture of what's going on here in the early church. It's not saying that the apostles seized the means of production and then, and then so distributed the wealth to the rest of the church. It doesn't even say that the apostles are the ones who decide where the needs go. As we're going to see in Acts chapter 6, the apostles actually don't want any part of the financial stuff. They're just saying, hey, we want to dedicate ourselves to prayer and teaching. Appoint other people who could do this. So the, this is not some top-down control of the church and some kind of communistic reign of the church. What this is like is, is a church today that gathers together regularly, asks if anyone has needs, and if someone has a need, then the next ask is, well, is there someone who can provide for that need? You know, I, we, need, we need help at, at, at the home. Can someone babysit? Uh, we, we need help financially over here. Is there someone who can give generously to the church so we can bless this person? That's more what it's like. It's not, it's not some kind of top-down control. It's, it functions more like a family that blesses everyone and cares for everyone in its midst. That's a really important thing to understand because there's such a pressure on the church today to take care of the needs of the world around us, which is a good pressure, by the way. But unfortunately, it's gone to the point where you're supposed to care for the world around you to the neglect of those within the church, which would be totally improper in the same way that, you know, if I, was, if I said, I'm going to give away all of, of my wealth so that my, my wife and son go hungry, but I'm going to do that so I can feed other people's children. Well, that's improper. Right? I, I need to care first for my family, and then if there's excess that the Lord has blessed me with, sure, I can give it elsewhere. So too in the church. The church is to care for its own first, and then, as the Lord provides blessing and excess, to give that splendor to others as well, to show the generosity of Christ. But every place in the New Testament where the church is exhorted to give and to care, it's always for people within the church that they're being told to give and to care for. Uh, Timothy's told to care for the widows. The widows who are in the church, the ones who, it is not supposed to go through all of the city of Ephesus and say, are you a widow? Are you a widow? Here's, here's some money. He's, he's caring for the people in, in the body. And that's what it says here. It doesn't say that everyone in Jerusalem has all of their needs met. Verse 44, and all who believed were together had all things, all things in common. And they, that's all those believing, 
were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to the proceeds of all. Not all in Jerusalem, all of the believing folks, the, the ones who were just mentioned in verse 44. As any of those had need. So I, I think you're understanding a little bit of what I'm, what I'm saying here. The other aspect of this is, what, what I'm saying is, fellowship is more than friendship in the church. It is more than friendship. It is a deep care for others who you have a common faith with. I don't feel financially obligated towards someone I'm friends with. I do feel financially obligated to care for my own family. I do feel financially obligated to care for the needs of someone in this church if they have want. And, and you should too. You should feel financially obligated not to others all around the world, but you should have a kind of deeper fellowship that goes on. And, and it's more than that. You also feel obligated for their spiritual growth and well-being. If you're friends with someone, as the world uses that term, it's someone you ha- hang out with and someone you have something in common with. But fellowship is, is deeper than that. It's someone you're, you're pressing in on. You're asking you know, hard, difficult, but meaningful questions. Like, how can I pray for you? What's, what are you? what is on a concern in your mind right now? What's a need that you have? How can I care for you? This is fellowship. It's deeper than, oh, did you see the game? You know, uh, who do you think will win? As we're going to you know, celebrate later today. Um, but fellowship is much, much deeper than simply small talk about things that you have shared interest in. And that's because that fellowship is based on common theological belief. Fellowship springs out of shared commitments to Christ. We can have friendship with all kinds of folks in the world. Truly, Christians can only have fellowship with one another. Some of you uh, may or may not know this about uh, Max and I. We, we went to the same college for about four years. We were both believers, but we didn't really run in the same circles. We didn't have, really have the same interests. My point is we weren't really fr- friends in college. But we get along quite well right now because we have a deeper fellowship than just like, what are you interested in? You know, Max tells a story about hunting, and I'm like, I've never hunted in my life. I don't even know how to shoot a bow. I don't have interest in that. But I have something so much more meaningfully in common with Max, which is when he says, look at the glory of Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the grace that God has shown me in my life here. I can resonate and say yes and amen to all of those things. When I say I struggle with sin, Max knows what I'm talking about, and he says yes, and we're praying for that war against sin. And, and you all know this experience, right? You all know what it is to care on a deeper level for someone and for their benefit, such that you can have hardly anything in common with someone and still share so much in common because you have Christ in common. This is the core of what it means to gather as a church. Now, just a quick thought experiment. If you think about just the people you're in church with right now, think about how many things you have in common outside of that core common belief in Christ. You might have some things. You might have common interests. You know, you like the same kinds of hobbies. You work in the same kinds of fields, whatever it might be. But that's not the kind of thing that's going to make you hang out with each other on a week-in and week-out basis. Those aren't the kinds of things that are going to get you over and, and sharing deep, deep things about what's going on in your life on a regular basis. My point is you have more in common than that and something much more importantly in common than that. A shared worldview, a shared Lord and Savior, a shared body that you now partake in. 
So if, if, the, if the core of a church is this fellowship that Christians have together, and then the teaching that that fellowship is based upon, or sorry, the, the teaching that that fellowship springs out of, well, then we have to say to lose either of those things is to lose what it means to be a church. So let me thread the needle here real quick. This is, this is a, a common thing today. Someone will say, not this extreme, not that extreme, somewhere in the middle. And it's going to sound like I'm saying that uh, right now, but I just want you to hear very clearly that you really can't have true teaching on its own, and you really can't have true fellowship on its own while casting the others aside. These are, these are, n- these are not things that can operate independently from one another. So consider, for instance... A church that would prioritize teaching to such an extent that it neglects and, and totally diminishes fellowship. What might that look like? This would be a, a church where you could go and you could hear some kind of theology. You could hear some kind of teaching and instruction. You could hear some kind of edification. But you would not have a connection beyond simply going and receiving the teaching. You might show up for an hour on Sunday you might leave, and you might never see those people again until that next Sunday when you go and see the teaching and you leave. But all you're doing is you're receiving teaching. But imagine how thin that teaching would be if you can sit on that teaching on a regular basis and not feel like you're missing out on the life of the church. Because part of what the church teaches is that we are to be together in fellowship. Part of what Paul teaches in almost all of his letters is we are to be dependent on one another as the body of Christ. So for a church to teach to the neglect of fellowship means it has to ignore certain things in its teaching. And in America, that means it has to make Christianity an individual, private, intimate, and personal affair. Which it is, but it has to do that to the exclusion of the communal connection. It's very popular today. It doesn't matter whether you have other Christians who know you, you can worship online. You can log in and and chat with other people online and you can receive individually in the comfort of your bed if you want to. You can hear a sermon, you you can listen to the worship, and you can do that all without knowing any other flesh and blood Christians. It's not good teaching because it neglects a core part of what is is essential to the church can't take a lens out of a camera and have a camera. You cannot take fellowship out of the church and have a church. A church is teaching, but it's a teaching that takes place in a community of people who share this teaching together and who bleed on one another together and who apply that teaching to their lives. A quick example of this, if you were to count up all of the times the New Testament uses the phrase one another, it's it's one term in the original uh, language, but they're all, all over the place in the New Testament says love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. And you could count up all those times it uses the one another's. Who is the one another that you as a Christian are to be obedient to serve and care for in that way? It's not everyone in the world. That's quite a burden. The one another's are in the context of a church. To the church in Ephesus, care for one another. To the church in Galatia, bear one another's burdens. We are to love and care for and fellowship with one another, meaning the Christians in your community, the Christians who you worship with. Ask yourself, would it be possible to obey that command without having a church, without having people you can actually do that for? 
I would say it's totally impossible to be obedient to God's word and to not, because you can't live that out. Okay, so that would be a church that prioritizes teaching to the neglect of fellowship. And again, that's really a, a false kind of teaching that's going on there. Now, what about a church that might say, I want fellowship to the neglect of teaching? I want to have things in common with people to the neglect of any kind of basis for that. Well, we, ha- we already have groups like this in our society, very popular thing. Voluntary social clubs. Uh, you, can, you can be part of a, a Facebook group that is, has got certain things in common, you know, but it's around like a shared interest and there's no real authority structure there. It's kind of like you share your thing, I share my thing. This is how it goes. But there's, no, there's no, nothing guiding a group like that. Now, what, what if you try to take that into a space where it's religious, like worship and sanctification and holiness, and traditionally churches will talk about sin and our need for forgiveness. So how do you, what if you really prioritize fellowship and you say things like, well, we'll welcome you even if Christ doesn't. Or you can, you can be part of us even if God would say that's sin that needs to be confessed and repented of, but we'll receive you. Well, that's a church that's pretending to be more empathetic than Christ. That's a church that's saying we can have fellowship more than God can have fellowship. It's quite an arrogant thing to say. It's a church that moves the line to the point where there is no line or fudges the margins to the point where there is no margins. And so then you have to say things like, we're inclusive of everything, which means we're intolerant of anyone who would insist on not being inclusive of everything. Or if you think about the very common, uh, you know, I, I live on, on 30th Street and there's a, there's a billboard sponsored by a church that's on, on my way into where I live that says, love trans people, Jesus would. And then it has the church website address on it. Now, all the words on that billboard are true. Right? All the words on that billboard are, a Christian can say yes to all of those things. But what it's, the empathetic, the emphatic message of that is, don't tell trans people they need to have sin to repent of and to confess their sins before the Lord and be received by Christ. Don't say that. That would be unloving. But that's not at all the kind of fellowship Jesus tells us to have. Keep in mind, the church that's having fellowship here is the church that says in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance is core to fellowship. So a church should be loving and receptive and caring for the needs of all those who might walk into its doors, all those who might find themselves in its orbit, but not at the expense of core theology. Definitely at the expense of tertiary theology. (laughs) Um, So there's lots of things that we should be careful to not insist on our own way in. But there are some things we just can't do without. Why is that important? That is important because, like I said in the fellowship part, our fellowship is based around Christ and his forgiveness of us. This is what we share in common. This is what we gather to worship God for. So how could we rightly gather week in and week out with a group of people and be worshiping God 
if, if we don't even know what we're worshiping him for. If I say I'm a sinner, I need forgiveness, Christ has forgiven me, and someone else says, I don't, I don't have any sin that I need to confess, what are they worshiping Christ for? And why am I worshiping Christ with them as though I'm on the same page as them in their worship? That's not true at all. So you cannot dispense with teaching. You cannot dispense with fellowship. They're both essential to the life of the church. Now consider one more thing, and then we'll close. That if that teaching and that fellowship come together, as we see here, then the Lord is pleased to do what he does in verse 47. Adding to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. If you want to know how you evangelize a people, a lost and dying world, how do you do that? Do you make the church attractional so that more people walk in the doors? Do you lessen the emphasis of what the church teaches so that people might be more interested in what it has to offer? No and no. You don't broaden your fellowship. You don't, you don't de-emphasize your teaching. How do you get to a lost and dying world? You teach what Christ teaches, and you fellowship how Christ tells us to fellowship. This is how evangelism is done. Not by rallies and crusades where you go across the nation and you say, everyone here, walk down the aisle. Okay, you're a Christian now. See ya. We're in a different town next week. Because then where do those people go? How do they, how do they persist in obedience to their Lord? now that the rally is gone and the, and the worship service is over. Well, you know, how do, how do you obey the Lord after Sunday? Well, you know, you have dinner with someone from the church on, on Monday, or you'll see them on Tuesday morning for coffee, or you're going to have accountability with them at some point this week, and you're going to be able to pray for one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens. You know how to obey this. And so what is the Lord pleased to do in that kind of a church environment? Well, he's pleased to add daily to the number of those Christians. Because this is a church that not just a flash in the pan. That would be the kind of church that the Lord says, I'm going to send lost people to so they can hear the good news and be welcomed and received with the arms that I would receive them with when they repent. This is how we evangelize the world. You want to know how uh, in 150, 200, 300 years, Indianapolis could be a Christian community. How? Churches worship on Sunday, fellowship throughout the week, and as they have chance, they tell others about what they believe and why they believe it. Rinse and repeat. It's not, it's not fancy. But uh, how does a car get from one end of the nation to the other end of the nation? Well, let's not think about the whole car. That would be like thinking about the whole church in the, in the, in the world. Let's think about how one, at, one part of a car gets from one end of the nation to the other. How does the front left tire of a car go from one end of the nation to the other? It just rolls. It just rolls and it rolls and it rolls and it rolls and it rolls. And eventually, after thousands of revelations, it gets to the other end of the nation. There's nothing fancy about that. It's a pretty simple mechanism. But it's doing that while the other tire is doing it, while the other tire is doing it, while the engine is spinning as well, while gas is being fed. The whole thing is moving together to move this vehicle along. That's just like what we're doing, what, what Midtown's doing, what College Park is doing. There's a lot of churches in Indianapolis that are doing this kind of thing. We're not trying to do everything. We're just trying to do our thing. Not because our thing is somehow exclusionary. It's working with that body of Christ to evangelize the lost world. But this is core, and this is the, the thing that I want us to walk away with, that's based on true teaching and biblical fellowship. Teaching without fellowship is not a church. 
Fellowship without teaching is not a church. A church has both teaching and fellowship. This is essential to what it is. It's essential to how it functions. And this is what the snapshot in Acts gives us. This is the church. Teaching from the apostles, fellowshipping as an outflow of that. And so the Lord is pleased to grow his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us that you have washed us with your blood. We have been renewed and sanctified and strengthened. And Lord, that you are making us into a new body of believers. That you have made us a new creation in Christ. That we are being made new day by day by the Holy Spirit. Lord, would you transform us by the renewing of our minds. Shape us into the image of your Son. And Lord, if you be pleased and we be faithful, would you add to us daily those who are being saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.